Well, this morning we're going to look uh, at the issue in our scriptures here this morning, the issue of sickness, death, and healing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm so glad I got the kids up and, and dressed so I can come to church and hear about a message about sickness and death. Well, the answer is yes and no. That's what we're going to talk about. But I want to notice here that we're also going to explore the issue, not just of sickness and death and healing, but why did Jesus heal? And another question that persists today, does the Lord still heal today? See, this, this issue affects us more, I think, than we realize, especially even in the cultural context that we're in right now. Never do we feel our humanness more than when we're struggling with sickness. Ever notice that? When, when, you don't, when you feel great, you don't even realize that you're human. You feel like you're superhuman. But as soon as you come down with something, as soon as you don't feel well, you start to feel it in your bones and you say, oh Lord, help me, you know, and you feel it more so. Never do we realize even the depths of our own sinful nature than when we feel the physical effects of that sin nature on our bodies and we understand why this happens. Furthermore, the problem of sickness and death is one of the key reasons that unbelievers cite for not believing in God. We hear things like, I could never believe in a God uh, who would allow people to get sick and even die and not heal them. We hear that accusation all the time. But the problem with that, it lies in the fact that people fundamentally misunderstand the character of God. They don't know who He is. The reality of sin, that sin is in the world and affects all of us. The reason behind sickness and death and the salvation and redemption offered in Jesus Christ. The world is utterly ignorant to all those realities, and so therefore they make the judgments that they do about God and about the nature of this world. See, as Christians, we can know these truths because they're given to us in the Word of God, and we understand them. We can rightly ascertain and rightly understand these truths. And in knowing God's truth, we can also find hope and peace and joy because we understand that God has a sovereign purpose for why everything happens the way that it does. And so this morning's message is designed further to encourage you in the face of pain and suffering. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 in your copy of Scripture, Matthew chapter 8. The first half of Matthew 8 really presents us with three interconnected stories Um, verses 1 through 17, we really read about three miraculous healings performed by Jesus. These are all sick people uh, who he deals with and heals. The first healing takes place in verses 1 through 4. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, where the leper comes to Jesus, and he pleads with Jesus. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus then turns and touches him, and immediately the leprosy is gone. The second healing is rather elaborate. It's the Roman uh, centurion comes to Jesus on behalf of his servant who has fallen sick. And although Jesus agrees to go and travel to the man's house, the centurion responds and says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus responds, he marvels at the man's faith, first of all, but then he responds by pronouncing the servant healed. And then when the soldier goes back to his house, he finds that Indeed, the servant has been healed. The third healing in this section takes place in verses 14 and 15, followed by a summary statement in verses 16 and 17. That's going to be our text for today. And so we're going to look at this together. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. When Jesus came into Peter's home, 
he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now this account really takes place uh, in the fishing village of Capernaum, as we saw last week. Jesus has relocated to Capernaum from his hometown of Nazareth really to establish his ministry home base. And you're going to see throughout the next several chapters, Jesus is operating out of Capernaum. That's really his base of operations. And we also know that several of his disciples uh, move there and relocate to Capernaum as well. According to John 144, Peter and his brother Andrew had moved from Bethsaida, the town of Bethsaida, presumably to be closer to Jesus. That was, it seems to be their reasoning for doing so. And if they moved, their family would certainly move with them. So their whole families would go and move to Capernaum. We don't know the marital relationships of the other disciples, but we do know that Peter at least was married. We know that for sure. We know this from 1 Corinthians 9.5 when Paul argues for the right of gospel ministers to take a wife with them, to be married. Uh, He cites an example. He says, even the rest of the disciples and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So that Cephas is another name for Peter. And so we notice that the the notion of the ministers not being able to be married, which is the position of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that's a fallacy. That's not true according to Scripture, since we know that several, if not all, the disciples were married, and certainly that includes Peter. Peter himself was married. And so Peter, he moves himself and his wife to Capernaum, and that likely included his mother-in-law, so Peter's wife's mother. Now, the account of This healing also occurs in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, as well as Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 39. So all three of those places account the exact same uh, healing here. These three accounts, they contain the the same basic information. You read all three passages, it's just about the same. There's a couple extra details which we're going to talk about. Both Mark and Luke, we read about the disciples actually telling Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law, and they're actually the ones who ask Jesus to come and heal her, which he does. And so by the time we pick up the story in Matthew's gospel, he's already heard the news about her being sick, and he's about ready to go and enter the house and attend to her. Verse 14 of our passage here, verse 14, tells us that when he arrives, Jesus sees this woman, and she is lying sick in her bed with a fever, a fever. Luke's gospel includes that she was also indeed suffering from a high fever. And so the idea being this is not just some low-grade temp with a little bit of a headache. It's not just that. Rather, that she's extremely sick and bedridden with this fever. That could be a number of things. I read some commentary this week that could have been something like uh, malaria. That could have been uh, some kind of another virus or some kind of a a sickness that would uh, debilitate a person with a high fever. The bottom line is that she's extremely sick and she is in pain. Now, I contemplated making a mother-in-law joke at this point. But the bottom line is that I I truly love my mother-in-law, so I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I suspect from the events we read about in Scripture, Peter also loved his mother-in-law very much. And based on the reaction in Mark 1.30, uh, they too, the disciples, the disciples loved her as well. And you know what? Jesus loved her also. He comes to her bedside and he takes action immediately. 
Matthew seems to understate it. He says that Jesus touched her hand. That's all he says. He touched her hand. But Luke records that he actually stands over her and rebukes the fever. If you can imagine such a thing. He's standing over her and he, he speaks to the fever and it is about to go. Mark adds another detail that he does this. As he's doing this, he actually grabs her by the hand and raises her up. So all these All these details happen in the same moment. And immediately, as soon as he does that, he goes in, touches her hand. He's standing over her. He speaks to this illness, grabs her by the hand, lifts her up, and immediately the fever is gone. There's no medicine. There's no recovery time. He just grabs her hand, lifts her up, and she's completely healed. But then all three gospel writers include one further detail that's very interesting. She got up. And waited on him. Why is this detail included? Well, I believe it illustrates the full and instantaneous nature of the healing. Within a matter of seconds, she's able to go from being fully sick and bedridden and incapacitated to restored to full strength and vitality. And she's ready to go. She probably hasn't felt this good in 20 years And wouldn't you know it, being a good mother, the first thing she thinks to do is she looks at Jesus and she essentially says, you look hungry, dear. Can I make you a sandwich? That's what she does. She waits on him. The Greek word is uh, diakonia. It literally means to serve or to, to minister. It's where we get our word deacon. She waits on him. She gets up immediately and she attends to the Lord in response to to all of this service and the healing she's she responds with thankfulness she's overjoyed and she serves the lord who serves her it's really quite a sweet gesture and with that matthew then transitions to a summary statement after reading about this very simple what we would regard to be a simple healing because it's only talked about in a couple of verses here but really matthew uses this other account to build on something else look at verses 16 and 17 Based on this, when it, it says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So verse 16 is, offers what happens after this healing. This is kind of the catalyst for what's about to happen next. Now, both Mark and Luke record that this healing, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, uh, as well as the leper and the centurion's servant, they all take place on the same day, and this same day is a Sabbath. This is a Sabbath. This is the Jewish uh, holy day where nothing is supposed to be done at all. In fact, this becomes a source of contention for, the, uh, for the Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of Israel, where they con- are constantly going back and saying, you're not supposed to be doing anything on the Sabbath, even healing anybody. And Jesus responds and rebukes them and quotes scripture and gives all kinds of reasons and they're essentially they're stumped. But that's the big accusation all throughout the entire gospel narrative is Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And he frequently did this. But it's likely the people who are bringing these sick folks to him, they didn't want to disobey the Sabbath laws because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't want to disobey. And so they wait until the end of the Sabbath, and then they're going to bring everybody that they know to be healed by Jesus. And so in terms of the timeline, 
the way that the record keeping would go is at the end of a day, usually it was right about 6 o'clock. So at the dinner time hour, that was considered to be the end of the day. And then the evening of that same day constituted the beginning of the next day. So right around 6 o'clock on the Sabbath, you could then have, you could move about the city and do your thing. And so at dusk is when they would count a new day. And so that's why we read, when evening came, they begin to bring out all these people because they're able to move about and do what they wish. Now, we know that there were, and still are, many people who are either possessed or influenced by demonic forces. I have no reason to believe that that has stopped. If you look at some things that happen even in the world today, there's really no other explanation for things like that. There is affliction. We are people, as in general, who are afflicted by the powers of darkness. I'm going to build and teach on this a lot more because there's many other accounts of this kind of thing. So uh, if you have questions about that, just hold tight. We will get to that. I'm going to try to develop a doctrine of how we understand the spirit world as we get to those passages of Scripture. But just for our purposes today, uh, in this culture, oftentimes illnesses such as epilepsy, seizures, they were oftentimes regarded as demon possession. And for those people, it was indistinguishable uh, demon possession versus just being severely sick and afflicted. Regardless of the cause, however, for the sake of all those who are, being, who are actually demon-possessed, the Bible says that Jesus would then cast out the spirits with a word. So people who were actually demon-possessed or demon-afflicted, they'd be brought to Jesus, and he would cast out these demons and send them out and heal the person spiritually in the moment. And then for all those who were sick and hurting... Matthew adds, he healed all who were ill. Indiscriminately, he healed all. So people were bringing all these afflicted and sick people in droves. This happens all throughout his ministry. Hundreds and thousands of people being brought to Jesus, and he's healing all of them as he sees them. Some of them he speaks to, some of them he touches, some of them he gets very intimate and will actually put his hands on their face and their eyes and and touch their body and heal them and minister to them. Quite a beautiful, remarkable thing. This is reminiscent, really, of what we read about in Matthew chapter 4. We we already saw this a few months ago, which is also a summary verse. And it says this, that Jesus was traveling throughout all Galilee, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. In fact, Jesus, you'll read about this, Jesus never puts conditions on healing. He healed indiscriminately anybody who came to him, even those who didn't appreciate the work. There are several times you read about in the Gospels where he would heal a person, they'd run off and say, all right, and they go and tell all their friends that they're better, and they don't even come back and heal and thank Jesus for being healed. And he says, where did that person go? He's not asking for really anything except just simply faith and trust and, and thankfulness. And so Jesus heals all these people. Even in chapter 8, though, we even see three different cases and three different kinds of cases of how this happens. And just when it comes to faith and healing, we're going to talk about that today. The leper really had faith in Jesus. And the leper, when he comes to Jesus, he asks him to be healed. Specifically, he he falls down on, on his face on the ground and he's begging Jesus, please heal me. He says, I know you're able to make me well. The centurion's servant, however, is different. When the centurion's servant is healed, it has nothing to do with the servant himself. He doesn't even know what's going on. He's homesick and practically dead. And so it's the the centurion who comes and has faith that Jesus can heal, and Jesus responds. 
But if you look at the instance here of Peter's mother-in-law, we read nothing about her faith at all. She doesn't even ask to be healed. Now the disciples come and they make their case in the other gospel accounts, but she says nothing to Jesus. He just walks in the room, grabs her, lifts her off the bed, and she's healed. Just like that. And so it's clear that the healings of Jesus, you know, I want to be very careful and say this clearly, the healings of Jesus are based on his own prerogative, his own prerogative, his own compassion, and his own desire to heal people. It has very little to do with the other person, believe it or not. It's about Jesus and his mercy. This is not entitlement. I want to be very clear about that. Healing is a mercy. It is not an entitlement. You'll read nothing of that in Scripture. But it's also a bit more. Look at verse 17. In the Greek, there's the, the first couple words here in the Greek are, are really a result clause. It's a, I believe it's an aina clause, which is like a, a result clause. This was to do something else. It was for this purpose. He says that this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And so the healing ministry of Jesus took place to fulfill biblical prophecy. To fulfill biblical prophecy. And this specific prophecy that's referenced comes from Isaiah 53.4. And scholars have noted that Matthew uh, isn't necessarily quoting the Greek translation. Uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. They just took the Old Hebrew and translated it into Greek. And even Jesus quoted from that Greek translation. But Matthew doesn't lift the translation or lift his quoting from that. He actually kind of has a, a free rendering. He knows the languages and he renders it pretty freely himself here. It's a loose quotation. Whereas our copy of Scripture would say, Isaiah 53.4 reads, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Matthew writes, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Not a huge difference, but it is also not insignificant that he does that. It becomes very clear that when Jesus heals people, he is proving his Messiahship. The fact that he's the the Savior, the Redeemer, the Anointed One, the Messiah of Israel, by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Now, more modern believers have seen these verses uh, to prove not only that we can expect divine healing today, but also that healing is part of the atonement, the work of Christ. I've I've seen many uh, people writing about this, and more modern scholars, or not even scholars, but more modern preachers, referencing this, you don't find this kind of theology in earlier literature, even from 100 years ago, beyond 100 years ago. But that's a popular thing today, that when Jesus died, he didn't just die to pay for sins, he also died to offer physical healing. And you're going to, depending on what church you go to, you hear hear something like that. Many churches and denominations believe and teach this, including, and this is not limited to, uh, the United Pentecostal Church teaches this, as well as the Assemblies of God Church. It's in their doctrinal statement. I've read this many, many times, that part of salvation includes the expectation of physical healing. And the question for us to think about and evaluate is, is this true? Are we to expect physical healing as part of the atonement? Because the atonement of Christ is part of the gospel. Does the gospel bring us and give us physical healing? Turn to Isaiah 53 in the Bible. Isaiah 53. We looked at this chapter, I guess, a few summers ago. Feels like it was just last week, but I guess it was a while ago. 
We spent several weeks on Isaiah 53. If you remember, we went through all the servant songs of Isaiah. It was kind of an Old Testament overview, building on the expectation of the Christ. And we did that leading up to Matthew's Gospel. And I I did that for a purpose two years ago because I wanted to make sure that we covered that material because I knew that Matthew would be alluding back to these other places in Scripture quite a bit. So uh, if you have questions about Isaiah 53, uh, my expositions are all on the website. You can go back and fill out more of of questions that you might have or a deeper understanding of these verses. Uh, That's there for you to be a service to you. But I want to look at this briefly. Briefly, the first thing we note about this is that this is what's regarded as the fourth servant song. These are called servant songs. It's, it's prophecy dealing with the Messiah as a servant of Israel. It's the fourth servant song, and it's looking ahead to the coming of this Messiah, who is the Savior, the anointed one of Israel. In this chapter here, There are many themes in Isaiah about this servant, who we know to be Jesus. We see here, this is the Lord's servant suffering for the sins of his people. So this is the suffering servant here. That's the big theme. I want to just look at a couple of these verses. Verses, uh, Isaiah 53, even though the song begins a couple of verses prior in chapter 52, really 53 is the meat of it. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned aside to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him." And the, verse, the verses keep on going. But we read about this, already this is a horrible scene. It's as if Isaiah, writing 700 years before the crucifixion, is somehow spiritually present and witnessing theologically and spiritually what's happening at the cross. It's quite remarkable. Only God could have authored it this way. But Isaiah gives us, and this is oftentimes sort of in layman's terms called the gospel according to Isaiah. Because he sees what the other Gospels really don't see in his sight here given to him by God. But Isaiah sees this rightly. And he he describes this scene of the servant being stricken and afflicted by God. And the question is, for what purpose? Why would God subject his servant, the one he calls, the one he loves, the one he has lifted up and exalted, why would he subject his servant to all of this scorn? What what is the purpose here? And the the answer is, for sins. For sins. And the question again is, well, whose sins? Certainly not his. He doesn't have any sins, as we're going to see. No, he's subjected to all this for our sins. For our sins. Look at verse 4 again. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our sins 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. He says in verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Now, proponents of faith healing, or this idea that there is physical healing in the atonement, which is what this is, the payment for sin, the gospel, they like to camp out on verse 5 here. And they note that it says here very specifically, by his scourging, literally stripes, by his lashings, by his scourging, we are healed. And I, I remember I was in conversation, a pastor had come to me, we, were, we met together and he wanted to have both of our churches do ministry together. And I had serious concerns about this and we sat down for just a little meeting and I I said, well, brother, I appreciate your earnestness. I really do. I, I think that, you know, I, I like you. We're friends here. And I said, but I don't think we agree on the gospel. He says, what do you mean? And I said, well, how do you understand divine healing? How do you understand where that comes in? He says, well, it's promised to us. And I said, so where do you get that? And he went right to here. He said, well, right here, the gospel, Isaiah 53, says it's by his stripes we're healed. And I, I said, well, I, I knew you were going to say that. I said, I've read your doctrinal statement. I knew you were going to say that. I said, and I brought him through the context of Isaiah 53. And at a certain point, he stopped talking about the Bible verses, and he went right to his experience. He says, well, last week in church, we had a lady who had a sore neck, and I watched her get healed from the sore neck. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I says, I praise God that she felt better. That's good. I said, but the issue for us is, is there healing promised in the atonement? Is this, is this? I said, this is a gospel issue. And we went round and round and round, and by the end of it, I said, I just don't think we agree on what we are to expect. And I said, I'm concerned about the focus of the ministry. And we didn't end up doing ministry together, because this is an issue of the gospel. What does the gospel promise us? But the healing that we see in Isaiah 53 is not primarily a physical healing. In fact, it's most certainly spiritual Because the sickness that's alluded to all throughout Isaiah 53 is a spiritual sickness. Look at this with me. Verse 4. He says, this is griefs, sorrows. Verse 5. Transgressions. That's sin. Iniquities. Verse 6. Iniquity. Verse 8. Transgression. Verse 11. Iniquities. Verse 12. He himself bore our sin. It's clear as day. Even verse 10 likens Jesus, the suffering servant, he says he renders him to be a guilt offering. That's Old Testament Levitical language. The guilt offering was the sacrifice made to God for sin. So this is very clearly in the context of the passage, dealing with the spiritual sickness of sin. And the question is, well, why then does Matthew equate physical healing with the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy? Well, to answer the question, we have to understand why sickness and death even exist in the first place. Sickness and death exist because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. That's why. Romans 5.12, even though one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the sin of Adam opened up the gates here for all sin and death and the consequences of sin and death 
to happen. The, the death is the consequence, and with that comes all kinds of sickness and infirmity. Romans 8 talks about the fact that the creation itself, all the creation, is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth together with us until now. So we feel that even the physical effects of sin, death is the ultimate effect on earth of sin, eternal punishment is the ultimate, the penultimate effect of sin, all the creation itself decay. The fact that nature rips itself apart, the fact that there's war and sin against one another, why there is famines, why there is all kinds of destruction on this planet, all of the infirmity of this world, spiritual and physical, comes through the fall, through Adam and Eve and their sin. And God promised that this is going to be this way when he told Adam in Genesis 2, he says, if you sin against me, if you eat the fruit of this tree, if you sin against me, that's the day you're surely going to die. Now, by God's kindness, Adam didn't die physically right then and there. He lived quite a lot longer than that. But the effects of that came in immediately. Immediately. And suddenly, Satan was cursed, Eve was cursed, and Adam was cursed. And all of us have felt the effect of that curse as well. Death comes in the curse. Sickness came in the curse. Pain comes in the curse. The degradation of creation comes in the curse. And because sin has spread to all people, the curse itself has spread to all people. Not a single one of us is left out of that curse. Even those who are otherwise innocent. I didn't say sinless. Innocent in terms of culpability. Babies, young children, those who are mentally disabled. These people are not capable of conscientiously committing sins even though they have a nature that is by inherently sinful. But yet all of us, every single one of us, from birth to old age, all of us experience the effects of the curse because of sin. All of us. And this connection is so strong, in fact, that first century Jews believed that sin and sickness were directly connected. In other words, if you were afflicted with a terrible sickness, it was because you sinned against God and he's punishing you. That's what they believed. They believed it very strongly. Now, in some cases, beloved, that's true. Some cases. Sometimes your sickness or your disease is a natural consequence of sinful actions. It does happen. It happens all the time. Just a, a very coarse example. I mean, you go do something foolish. Say you go rob a bank and you're speeding off in your car, and, you, and you're escaping the police, and you're going 95 miles an hour on the street, and you lose control and crash into the side of a building, and you're in the hospital for the next three months, that injury, that sickness, that pain is a direct result of your sin. But there are many, many, many times when our sickness, our infirmity, has nothing to do with a sin that we have conscientiously committed against God. And actually, Jesus destroys that in one place, In John chapter 9, let me just read this to you. John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Rabbi, this man can't, he hasn't been able to see his entire life. Obviously, you've afflicted him. And so that's a given in their minds. But what they want to know is, did he sin as a baby or something? Or did his parents sin and curse? Why is he blind? And Jesus responds and says, It was neither that man 
or excuse me, neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes and heals him. So his infirmity, his sickness had nothing to do with something he had done or his parents had done. His sickness in that moment existed so that Jesus could display the glory of God in healing him. Just because you're sick doesn't mean that God is punishing you. And I would add this. If you are sick or struggling and you don't know the Lord, and you don't know the Lord, let me offer this to you, that God might be using your sickness to draw you to himself. Because again, what does sickness do? It destroys our self-sufficiency, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we're not so great, we're not so powerful, we're not so invincible anymore. My ability to earn and, and master my financial future is gone. My ability to be this, this beacon of health and well-being, that's gone. My ability to be a functional member of society, if I'm infirmed and I'm, I'm incapacitated, that's gone. And it affects you spiritually, doesn't it? It affects you psychologically, mentally, emotionally. God does these things to knock out your self-sufficiency so that you will put your life and your trust in his hands. It brings us to the point of crisis where you say, I got nothing. Lord, have mercy. Help me. And you put your trust in him. He uses this all the time. And I would even encourage you, if that's you, if you're in a place where you're suffering, if you've been sick, some of you are chronically ill, chronically in pain, chronically sick. If you don't know the Lord, I want to make my entreaty to you that your sickness is not going to last forever. There's going to come a point when your body is gone, it it dies, and that sickness is going to be gone. But let me tell you, your soul will live forever. Your soul will live forever. So what you do with your soul matters. Give your life to God. Trust God with your life and your future. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him for mercy, for forgiveness. And according to the promises of God, He grants it. He'll forgive you, and He'll save you. And maybe your sickness won't leave, but your soul will be in heaven with Him when you die. There's no greater purpose. If, if I've met people, I've probably told the story 50 times from this pulpit. There was a man one time uh, at a previous church, the pastor did kind of an unorthodox thing, and he was talking about thankfulness, and he, he asked members of the church to stand up and say what they were thankful for. And everybody kind of gave their normal responses and thankful for family and friends and health and things like that. And a man who'd been riddled with cancer for years stood up and said, I'm thankful for cancer. And the whole congregation just gasped. And he said, because my cancer is what drove me to the place where I realized that I thought I was a Christian. I really wasn't. And it forced me to realize that I had not been right with God. I did not trust him for salvation. And I turned from my sins in the midst of battling stage four cancer. And I turned and gave my life to the Lord and he saved me. And by the way, he healed me. And the man is now still, as far as I'm aware, in remission. He was thankful for his cancer because God used it to save his soul. That's perspective. I'll never forget that story. I'll probably tell it 50 more times before I die. I love it. Let me offer this other encouragement to you. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Christ, and you're struggling with sickness or even affliction, you need to know that God is chastening you as a child. He's disciplining you. He's training you. He's actually building you to become more like Jesus. As Christians, our entire life, everything we do is designed to to whittle away 
at the old nature, at our sinful nature, that's been paid for by Christ, and whittle us away and drive us toward Christ-likeness. I think about John 15. He says, every, every branch in me, in me, he says, is going to be pruned and cut so that it can bear more fruit. God is pruning us as believers. You think that 2020 was a catastrophe? That was one big exercise in divine pruning. You feel it? I felt it. God is pruning us and clipping off dead limbs, dead branches, exposing sin, exposing weaknesses, and driving us toward Christ-likeness and growing our faith. And so, if God has afflicted even His own Son, then certainly He will chasten those who belong to Him all for His glory. I mean, I just think about the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, he's confessing, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations he was receiving, he says, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know if that was a physical sickness or a spiritual tormenting. We don't know. But whatever it was, it was bad. And he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. He begged God to remove this infirmity, this tormenting from him. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly. I love that Paul says this about his infirmity, most gladly. Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul saw his infirmity, he saw his affliction in the context of the sovereign grace of God in his own life. That God is chastening me. That God is wearing me down in removing self-sufficiency and for Paul, removing pride. Because Paul could have been a very prideful person. How are you doing? I'm the Apostle Paul. And everybody in church history goes, wow. Paul knew who he was. He knew he was the chief of sinners. He knew he was a debtor to grace. He knew that he was suffering justly under the kindness and the providence of God. That God was making him weak in order to make him strong. He knew that. He learned to be content in every situation he was in because he was afflicted all the time. Poor guy. But he knew. All of this is so that we learn to see God's grace as being sufficient. That God's grace, my friends, is sufficient. It's no fun being sick. It's no fun being bedridden and can't even move. It's no fun having to depend on other people to serve you. It's no fun being in chronic pain. I've experienced about a millisecond of chronic pain. And even the three months that I experienced gave me a window into those who've been suffering for years, years and years of chronic pain. And chronic pain is mind-numbing. It is soul-crushing. However, as believers, we are taught and trained to see that we are to look for our strength and sufficiency in Christ. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my strength. Christ is my mercy. Christ is my love. 
And if I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and have a breath in my lung, it's going to be because of Christ. That's why God does this. It's so that we look to him for strength. Why did Jesus heal physical sickness when he was here? I think it's very simply. He was demonstrating that he was able to destroy sin and the reason and the affliction that comes from sin. If all sickness and all death and all infirmity is ultimately a result of the sin, it's a visible way, it's an illustration to prove that only Christ can reverse the effects of the fall. Because anybody could have come in that time and said, I'm here to forgive sins. And people could have looked at that person and said, well, prove it. Anybody can say, I, I forgive you, you're healed, you're forgiven. Anybody could say that. Okay, prove it. So then he would go and physically show that a person was thereby healed spiritually. We're going to read about that in a couple of weeks. Where he says to the Pharisees, after he heals a person, he heals his body, says, your sins are forgiven. And they don't understand. They say, who can forgive sins except God alone? And then Jesus turns and he heals him and he stands up and takes up his mat. It demonstrates physically, visibly, that in fact Jesus is able to do Physically, what he says, you can also do spiritually. This is how he proves it. Because again, our biggest problem, our biggest problem is not poor health. It's not sickness. It's not disease. It's not infirmity. That's not my biggest problem. You can be sick and still go to heaven. Rather, our biggest problem is spiritual. It's a spiritual cancer that sends us to hell. No amount of diet or exercise or inoculation or anything can save you from the flames if you don't have Christ. It's a spiritual thing. But Jesus came to redeem the whole person. Jesus came to redeem the soul, the mind, and the body. The soul He saves immediately once you believe. That's what happens in justification. And regeneration, He saves your soul immediately. Your mind, He renews day by day, doesn't He? And the body, He will restore to completion one day forever in glory. Some of you will never know what it's like to be free from that kind of pain until you see the Lord again face to face. But what about those who would teach that we are to expect healing in this life as Christians? I think we've already kind of talked about some of the things that the Bible says, but I I want to just offer you three big problems, I think, with this teaching and with the issue itself. I I want to offer extreme caution to that view. It's very easy for me as a preacher to get up and rail against prosperity gospel and faith healing and things like that, and I think it's right to do that. I think my job is to warn the flock, warn all of you of danger, spiritual danger, But I want to give some rationale here. Three big problems with this theology. Number one, it's biblically inaccurate. It's biblically inaccurate. While we do see descriptions of physical healing in the Bible, we see all kinds of accounts of people being healed, we never see a prescription. In other words, Jesus or the apostles never tell the churches, never tell us to go and try to heal people. That's never told to us to do that. Furthermore, we're not even told that we're expecting, we can expect to be healed. We're never promised physical wellness in this life. In fact, at the end of Paul's letters, he's even giving practical resources. 
He asks for prayers for those who are afflicted and sick and dying. He tells Timothy how to deal with his stomach problems using medicinal purposes. So even Paul's own writings doesn't presume that it's just, just going to be an automatic. No, we're, we're going to struggle with this kind of thing in our lifetime. And the belief that healing is a result of Christ's atonement, that's not correct either. In fact, even, and I would even say this, because I've read continuationist or charismatic scholars, and there's several out there, even when continuationist scholars examine the text of Scripture, they're forced to conclude that there is no physical healing promised in the atonement. And any teaching contrary to that truth is intellectually dishonest. And so it's biblically inaccurate. Number two, this teaching is disrespectful to God. It's disrespectful to God. And again, every time I've ever talked about this issue, it seems to be a hot-button issue in the church, and I think it's going to continue to be, but every time I speak about healing or miracles, invariably somebody will always come to me afterwards, either email or in person, and they'll tell me about an experience that they've seen or heard or had or something like that about someone being healed. And I want to just be very clear about this. If God brings healing to a person, praise him. Okay? Praise God if he chooses to heal. Because I believe it's very clear. God can do whatever he wants. God can heal people. Doctors have whole categories in medicine of things they can explain that they have to attribute to some other source. Well, it must be just a divine miracle or something. And they just fob it off and they go on with their lives. I know people who have been healed by God. Not as extreme as you see in the book of Acts. But if God chooses to heal somebody, then you ought to praise him for that and give him credit for that because he has chosen to do so. However, however, to expect or demand healing from God presumes on his grace and I believe manifests a prideful heart to go and tell God what he's going to do for us. Anything we get from God is mercy and grace. I, I am owed nothing except punishment. But God has shown me mercy. And the same thing for all of you who are in Christ. We have no business telling God, demanding God what he's going to do for us. At all. We entreat him. We are debtors to his grace, as I've said. He owes us nothing. And so when he acts and when he blesses, my friends, praise him abundantly. When he gives you financially what you need, when he heals your body, when you recover quicker than you expected, when, when you're saved from a, an accident that could have happened, all these different acts of providence that God blesses us, praise him, praise him. Okay? Number three. This theology of expectant healing and faith healing, healing on demand, number three, it weakens and destroys faith. It weakens and destroys faith. Teachers who espouse the doctrine of healing on demand, they oftentimes connect it to faith. It's very convenient. Because they'll say, if you want to be healed, give money. That's the first thing they'll tell you. But if you want to be healed, all you have to do is believe. And then a person would come back and say, I'm not being healed. And what they say to them, they don't say, well, my theology might be off. They turn around and they say, well, your faith must not be strong enough. And they pin it back on the person. What does that do for a person who's struggling already and weak in faith already? It hampers down. 
It, de- it demoralizes them. It attacks them. And suddenly, they're at this theological crossroads where they think to themselves, maybe I don't have any faith at all. And they pray, and they entreat God, and they entreat, and they pray, and they beg, and, and they trust Him, and they believe. And you go to some places in this world, I have friends who minister in Africa right now, you would not believe if I had told you the kinds of insanity that some of these false hucksters do to their people under the guise of faith healing. I've heard, I read a story two, three years ago about a pastor who taught his congregation that we have to be like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we need to walk through the flames. And what he did is he set his church on fire, the building on fire, and said, if we have enough faith, we're going to survive the fire. They all died, including the pastor. It's insane. Thankfully, there are faithful ministers of the gospel there. One's actually going to come in June and speak to us. I'm looking forward to meeting him and having him here who see this kind of stuff all the time. And they keep on telling us, stop sending your evangelists over here who have this theology. It's wrecking our churches. If you have enough faith, God will heal you. But what happens if it doesn't happen that way? Your faith struggles. It suffers. And invariably, the person either becomes embittered with God for not responding, or they doubt their own salvation. My friends, the Bible never advocates for this, There are isolated times in Scripture where Jesus will talk to his disciples and rebuke them for their lack of faith. But it's never prescriptive for us that somehow our affliction is directly connected to the fact that we don't believe in God. If you're sick, pray to be made well. Pray to be made well. James talks about coming to the elders, the leaders of the church, and we can pray with you. And we're certainly always happy to pray with you and ask for God to bless you, to heal you, to minister to you. And if God heals you, again, praise Him. Praise Him if He heals you. But if He doesn't, if He doesn't heal you, or if it takes longer than you were hoping, know that His grace is sufficient for you. That He still has love for you. That in fact, if you belong to Him, He's he's doing this in and through His love. He's chastening you. And drawing your heart closer to Him. I've talked to many dear believers, many brothers and sisters in the faith, who have grown immensely in their love and their trust of God in the midst of their sickness. They begin to see that their sickness is a vehicle by which they can draw closer to God and trust Him. And the grace of God can become sweeter for them. Again, that's not a, that's not a promise. But that's just experience I've heard from many believers who have struggled in that way. And so I would, I would encourage you, seek the Lord even more when you're hurting and when you're sick and when you're down and know that He is there for you. Furthermore, if you have confessed your sins to God, He already has healed you from your greatest need, which is of spiritual sickness, your sins against God. And if you, or excuse me, when you finally go to be with Him someday, He will also rid you of your physical illness as well. There's coming a day, my friends, when the trappings of this life, this wicked flesh that's wrapping around our soul, is going to be gone. 1 Corinthians 15 says we're actually going to have a new body, a new body, an imperishable body, a body with strength, a body with power. And the church asks Paul, what is it going to be like? He says, I don't really know. But I can tell you, it's better than the one we have now. 
It's sown in corruption. It is reaped in power. And so that's going to be our future. Not only will our soul and our mind be renewed and glorified with Christ, our bodies will as well. In fact, I want to close with a reading from Revelation chapter 21. Really, it's a vision of the future, of the very thing I'm talking about. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Right, for these are These words are faithful and true. God has promised that He is and will make all things new. This life is not all there is. This is not all there is here, my friends. And when you watch the news or go on the internet and you see just the calamity, remind yourself, resist the temptation to freak out and get angry And lose your mind. We're believers. We belong to Christ. Who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Remind yourself again that not only is God laughing at this mess, Psalm 2. But He is making all things new. And if you're in Christ, He is remaking you new as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You are the divine healer. That You heal and restore our souls. That we once were lost and we were wretches, as the song says. Couldn't even get out of our own way. Riddled with sin, riddled with shame. Debtors of nothing but judgment. In pain and turmoil. Lost and alone. But God... We understand that in the Gospel, You reach down and You save us. And You give us a new faith, a new life. There's new stirrings inside of our hearts, inside of our souls that say, I don't want this. I want God. Something in us changes and we realize, I want to know God. I want to know who You are. I want to experience the salvation from You. I want to be a new person. And You do. You change us from the inside out. You change our hearts. You change our soul. And You save us from the penalty and the punishments of our sins. But not only do You save our souls, Lord, but even now, as we're living on this earth, You are redeeming and renewing our minds. That our minds, we begin to think different thoughts. We respond to situations in different ways. Our words begin to change. 
Our actions begin to change. Our heart for other people. Our hearts for the church and for our loved ones. Our heart for the lost. Our love for total strangers who need you. Our hearts grow because we understand the grace that we have received. And so you're healing even our minds and our hearts even now. And God, while there are times that you do give us physical and earthly blessings, we can also be sure that you promise that you will one day heal us in the whole person, heart, soul, mind, and body. That you will give us a new body that will never fade, never perish, always have energy, never feel pain. And the Bible says we will run on wings like eagles. We will walk and not become tired and run, not become weary, just like you do. Father, we long for the day we get to see you face to face. We long for the day where we're welcomed home into your arms. But God, until that day comes, I pray that you would give your bride, your beloved here, your church, a right understanding, a right vision for how you use even pain and suffering to chasten us and draw us to you and how you use all these things providentially to bring glory to your name. So Lord, I do pray that you would bless your people with health if you so see fit, but certainly with strength in the inner being that you would grow our faith that even in the midst of pain, that we would look to you and say, thank you, God, for your sufficient grace in my life. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.